Welcome to the Rising Mind Podcast. As incredibly varied and multifaceted as humanity can be, there are two realms of human variety that are greater still, the human mind and the spirit life. Our minds and spirit can grow and rise forever. In this podcast, I explore all kinds of subjects, ranging from spirituality to philosophy, from intellectual pursuits of mind to practical living guided by wisdom. And importantly, all of this exploration is guided by my experience and perspectives gained from studying the Urantia book. Don't know what the Urantia book is? No worries. You don't need to know. You'll still get real value from listening, and I'll explain everything along the way. If you do want to explore further, there are several links in each episode webpage. Now, on with the podcast. Today's episode is entitled, Atonement, a Theological Fiction. For thousands of years, Christian thinking has revolved around a central issue, Jesus' death on the cross. Why did he die that way? And what does it mean? Many Christian luminaries, some of the best philosophers in the Western world, have put forward theories about that meaning, and all of them fall into the category of atonement. These theories have spawned endless debate, and some have even given birth to whole new religious denominations. If you've read the Urantia book for any length of time, and even if you've only read part four, you'll know that it too explains the meaning of Jesus' death, though it differs from the mainstay of atonement thinking. In fact, it's more than different. It's diametrically opposed. I want to present new Urantia book readers, and perhaps even seasoned ones, a countervailing perspective on atonement, one based on my many years of reading the Urantia book. This desire is simple to state, but it's actually quite a difficult and lengthy thing to do. Why do it anyway? First, for new Urantia book readers coming from a Christian background, atonement is such a central religious issue, it's natural to look for what the Urantia book has to say about it. Second, it's hard to find all the places in the Urantia book where atonement is discussed. Like the Bible, the Urantia book is authored by many personalities, and the same subject arises in many different places. While investigating a single topic, it's very useful to know where to find all the many mentions and discussions. Third, a giant spiritual truth slumbers inside Christianity. Jesus' original teachings. His soul-satisfying message of a personal relationship with God contains infinite power to uplift people's spiritual life. And the Urantia book goes to great lengths to enumerate that message as much as any book can. The thread running through it all. As a religious system, Christianity begins with atonement. In the 1700s, John Wesley wrote, quote, Nothing in the Christian system is of greater consequence than the doctrine of the atonement, unquote. Other Christian authors have written, quote, Any view that does not recognize the sinfulness of man or the substitutionary nature of the atonement is deficient at best and heretical at worst, unquote. Fortunately for Urantia book believers, we don't have to worry about the strictures of Christian heresy or believing in the right Christian way. We're more interested in seeking the truth wherever it leads us. After all, as the Urantia book says in the final paper, quote, The New Testament is a superb Christian document, but it is only meagerly Jesusonian. 
Unquote. While I'm no atonement or even Christian scholar, I've found six major atonement theories. Almost all of them have a common theme, debt and repayment. The debt occurs when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden by committing the original sin of humanity. In some theories, the debt is literal and owed to the devil. Why the devil? He's the one who tricked Adam and Eve to go astray. So now he's in possession of humanity, i.e. they're in bondage to him. To spiritually free humanity, Jesus gives his life in exchange. This is the ransom theory and also the Christus Victor theory. In other theories, the debt isn't literal, but it relates to honor and justice. Adam and Eve committed an injustice against God, and God's honor, his sense of justice, must be restored. Different theories present differing rationale and methods of restoration, but they are all closely related. Here you find substitution theory, satisfaction theory, and penal substitution theory. In all of them, Jesus' life and his death are an offering to God to restore the balance of justice. The one theory that isn't based on debt and repayment is moral influence, sometimes called Christ as example. Here, Jesus' entire life, up to and including his death, serves to inspire people to live better and obey God. Jesus' death isn't a transaction that purchases forgiveness, but rather is a consequence of living a high moral life. In his day, the prevailing religion, Judaism, felt jealous, or more accurately, threatened, by his teachings and example, so they arranged to execute him. While no theory matches what the Urantia book presents, this one seems the closest in spirit. The Major Problems of Atonement The problems with atonement are innumerable. It would be a book-length task to list, order, and discuss them all. In this abbreviated effort, I'll touch on just the biggest problems. First, atonement misunderstands the nature of God. Second, it misunderstands the nature of divine love. And third, atonement thinking is wholly incompatible with what Jesus himself personally lived and taught. Bear in mind, Jesus didn't live his life to start a new religion. He lived it to offer an elevated and expanded understanding of God. It was his followers who created a new religion. Jesus was the inspiring example of Christianity, but its central themes, as presented in the New Testament, were inaugurated largely by Peter and then Paul. The Nature of God The first major problem with atonement theory is that it misunderstands God's character. In human character, many of our attributes are separate from one another and operate without being blended. Our notions of love, justice, mercy, duty, and so on are not integrated. When these traits move within us, we often want them in a very pure way. It's hard psychological work to slow down and try to balance the scales. How do you combine counterbalancing notions like love and duty, or justice and mercy? When we desire justice, for example, it often takes on a life of its own, untempered by duty or love. Sometimes we really crave revenge, but to make it more acceptable, we call it justice. Unlike human character, God's character is divinely integrated and unified. Although the word divinity has many meanings, in this discussion, divinity is a quality. It's a characteristic 
of deity. On personal levels, divinity is experienced as a combination of truth, beauty, and goodness. On impersonal levels, it's experienced as a combination of justice, power, and sovereignty. The greater the level of the unification of these three, the greater the level of divinity. And we recognize this when we use the word divine to describe something that's beautiful. The concert was simply divine, darling. Some music is so good, it touches us as transcendent. Many things can move us in this way. Art can do it. Architecture can, or product design, or movie, or a thousand other incredibly conceived and marvelously crafted human creations. The aspects of truth, beauty, and goodness are blended together to a degree sufficient for us to imagine a bit of divinity. This is not unexpected. After all, our personalities have a divine origin and therefore can recognize divinity. God, as the origin and an ultimate expression of personality, possesses the highest levels of divinity, the highest levels of character unification. God's sense of truth, his sense of justice, are fully integrated with his first and primary character trait, love. At no time does God think or act in ways that don't involve all of his divine characteristics. Justice is tempered by love. Sovereign acts of power are tempered by justice, and so on. His divinely integrated attributes are forever present and functioning conjointly. Never do they separate. Atonement claims that God, as a stern, unforgiving judge, acts separately from God as a loving, merciful father. It makes an analogy of God's character and human character. And further, this analogy, crude as it is, finds its roots in an Old Testament worldview. It says sometimes God is angry and doesn't care about being loving, and other times he's merciful and doesn't care about being just. It claims, to use a modern and terribly inapt phrase, that God hasn't integrated his shadow. He hasn't merged and tempered all the psychological parts of himself. He's incapable of acting in a mature, unified, or even transcendent way, a way that incorporates all the components of his divine being, the greatest of which is love. Humanity may have been justified in believing this view of God before the arrival and teachings of Melchizedek or Moses, perhaps even before the arrival of Jesus. Given that the apostles were steeped in traditional Jewish religion, the teachings and the worldview that are encapsulated in the Old Testament, it's easy to see how this conceptual mistake could occur in Christianity. An atonement theory follows that channel of misunderstanding. The Urantia book addresses this issue very early in paper two. Quote, the erroneous supposition that the righteousness of God was irreconcilable with the selfless love of the Heavenly Father presupposed absence of unity in the nature of deity and led directly to the elaboration of the atonement doctrine, which is a philosophic assault upon both the unity and the free willness of God. Unquote. Atonement utterly fails to express an elevated concept of the divine character of God, the very thing Jesus lived his life to demonstrate. Atonement accuses God of being non-divine. It fundamentally misrepresents cosmic reality and is wholly unreal.
The Nature of Divine Love The second problem with atonement is that it's based in selfishness. It focuses on the idea that Jesus died for your sins. In order to obtain life after death, salvation, you must believe this idea is true or God won't forgive your sins. If you don't believe God doesn't forgive, you don't survive. While this system of salvation is designed to bring glad news and joy, it actually works a reverse effect in the mind of its believers. The story of Jesus' death on the cross is so soul-wrenching that people feel they can never deserve the gift it purports to give. It creates profound feelings of guilt, unworthiness, undeservingness. Common refrains among atonement believers are, I am fallen, or I am not worthy, or I don't deserve this gift. To resolve this terrible tension, believers adopt a fallback position of accepting the whole narrative on pure faith alone and ignoring all their doubts. At the end of the dark path of atonement, believers are led to faith in God as their spiritual father. But what a path they must tread. First, they must navigate the psychological gravity well that Jesus died specifically for them in their stead. Next, they must consider the theological train wreck of paying a ransom to a loving God, something most people can't stop obsessing about. All of this enslaves their attention and cools their spiritual thinking, retarding their spiritual growth. The totality of their religious focus remains on themselves and whether or not they're believing the right doctrine in the right way. This self-focus is the opposite of divine love, which is unfailingly others-focused. Divine love is outward-seeking in all of its satisfaction. It fully understands that love is reciprocal. Quote, The experience of loving is very much a direct response to the experience of being loved. Unquote. The Arantia Book. As a first step, divine love seeks to serve, to uplift. Human love, on the other hand, often seeks to obtain as the first step. I need attention and support, human love says. How can I get it? When people are oriented outward in their relationship with God in seeking to uplift others, they're freed from self-conscious thoughts. They're unchained from the obsessive negative thinking that comes from worrying about worthiness, about guilt, about thoughts of bargaining, deserving, and ransoming that flow from the atonement. The first-hand experience of relating to your spiritual father and your incredible human family grows your faith. In turn, this illuminates your understanding of real salvation in the context of divinely created reality. As you build your personal relationship with God, partly by helping and serving other people, you may take it for granted that after physical death, you will have the irreplaceable experience of soul survival. This was the core of Jesus' message. God is your spiritual father, however you understand him, and salvation can be had through faith in this alone. This idea certainly wasn't new. It's a restatement of Melchizedek's teachings, which preceded Jesus by almost 2,000 years and helped shape the spiritual life of Abraham. All of Jesus' highest messages flow directly from this idea. Over and over, he taught spirit believers should have faith in God and develop a personal spiritual relationship with him. Love God with all your heart. They should also serve other people since we are all part of a vast spiritual family. 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Both of these activities are others-oriented. They put the focus outside the self, and when people become so absorbed in an activity that they forget to be self-conscious, they generally do their best. Atonement inhibits people because it departs from the nature of divine love. Jesus' Life Experience Across the course of Jesus' life, he sought to develop an ever-stronger relationship with God. Given the daily religious life of his traditional Jewish home, this began at a very early age. After his formal nightly prayers, he would have just a little talk with my Father in Heaven. As the years go by, Jesus develops distinct ideas about God, as we'll see. The First Visit to Jerusalem This episode shows the stark contrast between Jesus' concept of God and that of then Judaism. It happened during his first visit to Jerusalem when he was not quite 13 years old. He had just graduated from the synagogue schools and officially qualified to go to Jerusalem to attend his first Passover celebration. He brimmed with anticipation during the four-day journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem. This was literally the most exciting thing that had happened in his early years. But on the first day's visit, he was disheartened from watching the various ceremonies and rituals. While the scale and the grandeur of the Jerusalem temple impressed him, he was primarily interested in the spiritual content and significance of the temple ceremonies and worship. But they seemed perfunctory and empty, lacking in personal touch and meaning, unlike the smaller locale of Nazareth. He asked his parents many questions that day regarding the real meaning behind these ceremonies. In response to some of their answers, however, he would flatly reject any explanation that involved God being angry or expressing his wrath at humanity. At the conclusion of the first day's visit, after answering many queries about worship ceremonies, Joseph began to gently insist that Jesus accept the orthodox beliefs and explanations. Then this young lad, no older than an adolescent, surprised Mary and Joseph with the profound stirrings of his heart. Quote, he turned suddenly upon his parents and, looking appealingly into the eyes of his father, said, My father, it cannot be true. The father in heaven cannot so regard his erring children on earth. The heavenly father cannot love his children less than you love me. And I well know, no matter what unwise thing I might do, you would never pour out wrath upon me, nor vent anger against me. If you, my earthly father, possess such human reflections of the divine, how much more must the heavenly father be filled with goodness and overflowing with mercy? I refuse to believe that my father in heaven loves me less than my father on earth. Unquote. Urantia book, page 1378. If this simple, honest pleading of a boy just beginning to comprehend the infinite loving nature of God, isn't the very antithesis of a ransom-minded atonement. What is? With Jude in Jerusalem One thing missing from the Bible is any serious consideration of the death of Joseph. I think this is because the event occurred more than a decade before Jesus met the apostles, and he didn't really mention it to any of them. By the time Jesus was 14, Joseph's career had grown from a carpenter to a relatively prosperous building contractor. And to the family's great misfortune, Joseph died that year in a worksite accident. 
as the oldest male, Jesus was thrust into the position of head of household. He courageously and steadfastly shouldered the burden of supporting the family, a role he filled for the next 14 years. He served as a father to his eight younger siblings and as a comfort to his mother. Of all of his siblings, Jude was the most difficult to handle. He was idealistic and energetic, but lacking in self-control and discretion. Just the right mix for getting into trouble. When the boys turned 13, Jesus would take them to Jerusalem for their first Passover, as Joseph and Mary had done with him. They would go through the ceremony that would induct them into the full citizenship of Israel. Jesus had done this with the other boys in the family, and now it was Jude's turn. Over the years, Jude had developed strong Jewish patriotic feelings and deeply resented the Roman political rule. They weren't in Jerusalem but a few hours when Jude saw a Roman soldier heckling a pretty Jewish girl. He couldn't keep his incensed temper in check, and he let fly with his feelings loudly. After mouthing off to a Roman soldier twice, he was promptly arrested and transported to military prison. Jesus accompanied Jude, stayed with him in prison, and served as his legal defense. He tried to get Jude an early release so he could participate in the Passover ceremonies, but to no avail. Jude not only missed the evening worship, but the induction ceremony the next day. On the second day in prison, Jesus prevailed on the magistrate to overlook the whole incident as harmless and let Jude go free. But, having missed all the Passover rituals, Jesus and Jude started traveling back to Nazareth as soon as they were released. Now, here's the incredible part. Jesus didn't bring up the incident to Jude at all during their journey back home. He didn't immediately mention it to the family, not even Mary. Three weeks later, Jesus had a long discussion with Jude about the incident, after which Jude himself confessed to the family what had happened. If there was ever an opportunity for Jesus to act the stern judge, this was it. In this situation, there was literally no end of opportunities for Jesus to correct, upbraid, or demand atonement from Jude, even if it was only in the form of remorse. After all, it would now be a long time before Jude was an official citizen of Israel. No small consequence. And yet, Jesus steadfastly refused. He pursued a course in keeping with his conception of the values and nature of God. Love, patience, tolerance, meekness, kindness. The very inverse of atonement. The Cleansing of the Temple Jewish religious practice of the time was full of sacrifices, both figurative and literal. Nowhere were these sacrificial systems more in use than at the temple in Jerusalem, easily the largest temple in Judea, and there were elaborate schemes of commerce set up to support it all. Temple-approved vendors sold supposedly blemish-free animals, in case the animal you raised and brought from home was rejected by the inspecting priests, or if you didn't have any. There was also a system of currency exchange, so worshippers could pay the temple dues and the temple head tax in the proper temple coinage. It didn't take long before the cost of animals and currency exchange became burdensome, even usurious. A small purchase of silver temple coinage carried a 40% upcharge, 
and large purchases could cost 80% more than the face value. Priests, of course, were conveniently exempt from the temple taxes. After all, they were the beneficiaries. All this hubbub of commerce, the movement and storing of groaning animals, the loud heckling over prices, the priestly inspections, the jangling currency market, it took place in the courtyard of the temple, immediately outside the walls of supposedly the most holy, sacred, and spiritual location in all Judea. These ideas of purchasing favor with God clashed directly with Jesus' concept of the Heavenly Father and the kind of real spiritual relationship people could develop with him. What exactly does material money purchase in the spiritual realm? How does the shedding of animal blood, no matter the specimen, really cleanse the soul or even satisfy a crabby God? And what kind of divine being would find satisfaction in weakly destroying the material livelihood of their chosen people? As Jesus stood in the temple courtyard to teach, he overlooked the noisy, cramped, and dusty scene, and it struck his sensibilities with unusual force. Quote, to the amazement of his apostles, standing so near at hand, who refrained from participation in what so soon followed, Jesus stepped down from the teaching platform and, going over to the lad who was driving cattle through the court, took from him his whip of cords and swiftly drove the animals from the temple. But that was not all. He strode majestically before the wondering gaze of thousands assembled in the temple court to the farthest cattle pen and proceeded to open the gates of every stall and drive out the imprisoned animals. By this time, the assembled pilgrims were electrified, and with uproarious shouting, they moved towards the bazaars and began to overturn the tables of the money changers. In less than five minutes, all commerce had been swept from the temple. By the time the nearby Roman guards had appeared on the scene, all was quiet, and the crowds had become orderly. Jesus, returning to the speaker's stand, spoke to the multitude. You have this day witnessed that which is written in scriptures. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Unquote. The Urantia Book, page 1890. To Jesus, there was no place for the sacrifice of blood or money in a relationship with God. No kind of ransom transacts anything with the Universal Father. What focuses people's attention on such pursuits diverts their attention from the real work of the spiritual kingdom, cultivating that small, still voice within, that one thing of infinite value. Post-Resurrection Appearances After comparing Jesus' life experience with atonement thinking, it's clear he didn't support its undergirding ideas. However, some could claim that his death was so terrible, so transformative, he changed his mind on the cross. Yes, that's possible. After all, the word excruciating derives from the word crucify. For all other religious leaders, for all other people, for that matter, after they've died, there's no real way to find out if death changed their mind. But, and this is hilarious, Jesus is different. He came back to life. He reappeared and spoke to his followers. We can examine what he said after death. Was he consistent with his earlier messages, or did he take a turn down atonement lane? After his physical death, Jesus appears 19 times. 
He appeared to individuals, to the apostles several times, and to larger groups of other believers and followers. While in life, Jesus never seemed to be in a hurry. In these visits, he doesn't spend unnecessary time or words. He gets right to the point. He directly mentions loving God and serving humanity in almost every appearance and mentions it every single time he's with the apostles. Seven separate times he declares that these two activities are the gospel, and he spends a fair amount of time reinforcing these points directly with the apostles. The only time Jesus even mentions his death, he does so tangentially by referring to his resurrection. Even then, he only does it to reinforce his highest teachings. Quote, Your message is not changed by my resurrection experience. Sonship with God by faith is still the saving truth of the gospel of the kingdom. You are to go forth preaching the love of God and the service of man. That which the world needs most to know is, men are the sons of God, and through faith, they can actually realize and daily experience this ennobling truth. Unquote. Urantia Book, page 2052. In his appearances, what is notably, even conspicuously absent, is any mention of atonement-related ideas. Never does he mention sin, let alone original sin. God is never angry in Jesus' eyes. Sacrifice fails to enter the picture. Ransom is non-existent in his discussions. The experience of the cross did not change Jesus' mind about the message he most wanted to convey. The apostles, however, were differently minded. The many appearances of Jesus after his miraculous resurrection had excited the mind of many believers, and Peter most among the apostles. The Jews of that age looked for the supernatural, the miraculous, as proof of their belief, and these appearances certainly seemed to fit their expectations. Here, then, is the seed of what would ultimately grow into atonement theory. Quote, Already had begun the first steps of changing the gospel of the kingdom, sonship with God, and brotherhood with man, into the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. Nathaniel opposed this shift in the burden of their public message, but he could not withstand Peter's eloquence. Neither could he overcome the enthusiasm of the disciples, especially the women believers. And so, under the vigorous leadership of Peter, and ere the master ascended to the Father, his well-meaning representatives began that subtle process of gradually and certainly changing the religion of Jesus into a new and modified form of religion about Jesus. Unquote. The Urantia Book, page 2051. Conclusion. In my experience with the Urantia Book, it never dismantles a weak idea without offering a stronger one. Atonement would have you believe the gospel is based on, quote, the sacrifice of the innocent Son of God in the place of guilty sinners and in order to appease the wrath of an offended God, unquote. Urantia Book, page 2019. Rather, the gospel is based on the two most real and steadfast things in the cosmos, the nature of God and the nature of divine love. And Jesus was the exemplar of both. Jesus wasn't sacrifice or ransom or propitiation-minded, not as a young boy, 
not as a father-brother for his eight siblings, not as a divine creator living a human life on Urantia, not as a resurrected Marantia being exhorting his closest followers to carry on his highest teachings. By understanding God as a merciful spirit father, Jesus encouraged people to develop a real internal spirit relationship with him. And by seeing that divinity inaugurates the cycle of love by serving others first, Jesus encouraged his apostles, and all people really, to love each other, not merely as they want to be loved, but as he loved them. Jesus lived a life of hope and inspiration, not just for those of his day and age, but for everyone who had ever come after. He even lived for the trillions of ascendant mortals across millions of inhabited spheres who struggle just like we do to fight the good fight of faith. He cleared away the clouded thoughts of old, not by reinterpreting the doctrine of sacrifice and using it to justify his message, but by majestically dedicating himself to the highest principles he knew, striving to know God and serving humanity in love. Thank you.